Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. This week, I talk with political podcaster and Star Wars aficionado, Stephen Kent. That's coming up. First, let me tell you about the featured coffee being offered by American Pride Roasters this month. When you do the common things, it's a quote, when you do the common things in life in an uncommon way, you will command the attention of the world. That famous quote, it's from George Washington Carver. It can explain his incredible life and also the way things are done over at aprcoffee.com. George Washington Carver, he's famous for having come up with more than 300 uses for the peanut. In the Carver blend at aprcoffee.com, it's one of the favorites at my house. I personally love all things peanut butter and having it blended with the full city roasted South American beans, creating that subtle yet tasty blend is perfection. Please try it if you haven't already. Try anything over at aprcoffee.com. And at checkout, when you use the offer code ATM, they're going to send you a free bag of the Reagan blend when you buy a minimum of two pounds of coffee over there. Start your delicious coffee journey today. Get to aprcoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Stephen Kent is my very fun, very creative guest on this week's edition of At The Mic. Stephen is a young thinker in the world of DC politics. He has a passion for all things Star Wars as well. The two do join forces in his world. He and I talked about that and so much more during this week's conversation. Thanks for making time. I appreciate it, Stephen. Keith, it's nice to be with you. It, it has been like two years, I think, since I was in Dallas uh, visiting the Blaze. Um, yeah. It's been a while. I hope you're doing okay. I, I'm doing all right. A lot has changed in our world since you visited Dallas. And my goodness, what a uh, weird reality we live in now. Let's start where I first was introduced to you, and that is just as a guest, really, on The Blaze, right? Isn't that where we first started communicating? You were kind of the spokesperson? Yeah, yeah. So I was going through a fellowship program at the same time as a couple of folks who work in your building, uh, Ted Tuttle, Marissa Abbott. Uh, we were going through a media and journalism fellowship program. And at the same time, I was really in the peak of sort of running a Star Wars and politics podcast called Beltway Banthas. And <laughs> I, love I, yeah, I do too. And I, I thought to reach out to Stu and <laughs> I, I wanted to do a, a segment on the politics of The Last Jedi with him, or it might have been about <laughs> The Force Awakens, because I remember he had said something that I thought was not correct about The Force Awakens. <laughs> so I reached out uh, to be like, hey, let's uh, let's hash this out. Uh, and <laughs> You got to set the record straight yeah, when Star Wars canon yeah, it's, is... It's, is misrepresented, right? It's it's just something I have to do because I'm an obnoxious obnoxious fan. <laughs> but yeah, so Marissa actually uh, was able to to get me in touch with the guys, and and I went on the show. And you know, two years later, I think I've been on different Blaze programs close to twenty times, and been to Dallas to spend a day with you guys and Glenn and Stu. And um, it's it's just been a really really huge privilege. I'm just looking right now. Because you were on with Glenn Beck talking about Star Wars. Yeah. Okay. So I, I went to YouTube and I typed in Glenn Beck, Star Wars, Stephen Kent. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's out there. So, so ladies and gentlemen, get to YouTube 
and and watch and this even more than really that good. i mean like glenn glenn's brought me on the show graciously right. several times to talk about different like star wars <laughs> political controversies and then i i was able to trick him <laughs> into coming on my podcast uh, beltway banthas when we were both in las vegas for freedom fest one year i think this was about two years ago now and he came up to my hotel room uh bringing along his security men and his son it was really cool uh and we just talked for about an hour about different elements of star wars and things that he he likes and doesn't like. And it was a great, great time. And, and that was one of the finest moments of my life, just having Glenn Beck strut on into this hotel room with his bodyguards <laughs> to talk about Return of the Jedi. You know, what, what could be better than that? So that's the trick to getting him on your podcast. I need to tell him we're going to talk about Star Wars. Surprise, <laughs> you're doing at the mic today. Anyhow, yeah. no, that's really cool. That That's really cool. So you were born and raised in North Carolina, correct? Yeah, that's correct. You lived all over the state, went to school there. Tell us about your childhood and what it's like living in the Tar Heel state. Yeah, so I was born in the Piedmont area. So I, I was born in Durham, grew up in Raleigh, the sort of the Raleigh area out in the uh, the rural parts of it, lots of farmland in Wake County. Um, now, hang, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Hang on. How old are you? I am 31. 31. Yeah. So do math for me. 1989. Okay. Yeah, I was born in... 89. Okay. Yeah. Born in December 1989. Uh, grew up in the Wake County, Raleigh area. For the first 10 years, my dad was working as a association executive. Um, and also before that, he was a journalist. Um, so he did a lot of like weather coverage on the North Carolina coast and, you know, was getting blown around by hurricanes on WRAL Raleigh. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Now, wait, if you grew up in Raleigh, yeah. were you familiar at all with the band The Connells? You know, one of my favorite bands? Uh, from- I do know the name. Yes. Um, I would have been like too young to care or, or I know, know about you music, would've... but yeah, I, I am aware <laughs> okay. of them. Mm-hmm. So it was Raleigh for what, the first, did you say 10 years? Yeah, of about life, 10 or? years. Uh, my dad got a new job with the Realtors Association when I was uh, just about 11, um, and we moved to Greensboro, North Carolina for fifth grade, yeah. And so you eventually go to college at Western Carolina. and That's true. You're studying film. Right. That is true. Yeah. So I I spent the next you know ten years in Greensboro, North Carolina. I still consider that to be like home. Home. That is uh, that is where my mom still lives. I love that area. And I ended up going to Western Carolina out in the mountains. That's a little bit past Asheville. So you go past mm-hmm. hippie country, then you get out into the middle of nowhere. Uh, that's Western Carolina University in this little town called Silva slash Cullowee, North Carolina. And I did film school there for two years before I, uh, I got cold feet about being an artist. <laughs> that's what I wanted to ask you. So what did you plan on doing for a career? And then what made you change to political science? And you also changed schools at the same time. Yeah. So I wanted to write scripts, do stories. I wanted to be in the movie biz. Um, I don't remember exactly when sort of that, that moment was, but I just remember when I was in my teens, I was super pissed off about Michael Moore (laughs) having, (laughs) having a monopoly on sort of like really good political documentaries and driving the pop culture during the George W. Bush years. I was pretty like hardline conservative, uh, conservative Republican in my, in my youth. And I wanted to be a documentary political filmmaker. Um, and I had, you know, scripts, I was working on stories for like actual dramas and stuff like that. Uh, and so I was working at film school on that. Uh, I, I did about two years at Western Carolina before, I don't know, I just, I just got scared of being 
in the film business and struggling. <laughs> you know, I just, yeah. I just didn't, I didn't see an immediate path to success. And that made me a little bit freaked out. I knew I loved politics. I knew I loved government. And I was like, you know what? I know that when I get out of college, I can find work doing this. And I, I just decided to change majors because I was like, you know what? Hey, I, I can always make movies. I can, <laughs> nobody's stopping you from making a movie. I mean, my God, it's the 2000s, right? Um, That's so right, yeah. I, I decided to focus on, on, getting a career going in political work. And then if I wanted to make movies, you know, I would just do it. <laughs> and it. And it seems like, and I think you just kind of made this point, anybody can make a movie with the technology at our fingertips, in, in our pockets, quite frankly. Of course. And correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like the path to that, the second path you chose would make, you would think in theory anyway, face less resistance. In other words, you're in the world of politics and you decide to make films. As opposed to being in the film industry that has a different political persuasion and saying, let me now try to make a political film. It seems like you were wise to switch gears like that, no? Yeah, well, I think you have to have specializations um, in certain areas. And when you work in, I don't know, politics, government, grassroots work, and and get on the ground and experience politics, it's going to empower you to make better actual, you know, creative content down the way. I feel really good about that decision, and it is it has definitely worked out well for me, but I also am not making movies. So you could say in a way that it has not. I mean, Ben Shapiro, like he was, he was into movies. I think he wanted to do film early on in his career and he built in, instead the daily wire <laughs> and they're making movies um, okay. who's stopping you um, you know that's uh, that's yeah. something that I, I really believe strongly in now is your family into either film production or into politics I mean you've got yeah both. You've got two <laughs> siblings okay uh, you got an older sister a younger brother um, your parents I mean are, are they politically minded or or lean toward film? Yeah. So we have two strands in my family. Um, one is art and the other is politics. My Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I literally had no idea. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> it, it all works out. So so first of all, my dad, you know, he did he did news coverage for the longest time. He was a reporter. And then right. he got into lobbying. So he became an association executive. He sort of migrates from, um, you know, one association to the next representing their causes in the North Carolina State House. So right now he is the, uh, the head lobbyist for North Carolina's beer and wine industry. So that is, uh, you know, everybody's favorite lobbyist in town is the guy with all of the wine and the beer, the craft beer, which is also really nice. Um, so there, you know, my dad is a, is a political guy, but he also is more about doing business than he is about ideology. You know, as a lobbyist, it's about getting stuff done, right? So there's that element of it. And then on the other side, both my, my brother and my sister, my younger brother and my older sister are full-time creatives um, and artists. So my brother is a musician. He plays in punk rock bands um, and is trying wow. really hard uh, to make it in that life. And he's he's doing it. You know, he's doing a great job. And my sister is a Christian musician with her husband. Yeah. And they tour the country with their now three children in a van, go church to church and make really, oh, wow. really incredible Christian music, like really good stuff. And they're also huh. really avid YouTubers. Like they they YouTube their entire life for their, for their fans. <laughs> so, so how can you find their 
their stuff uh, on YouTube. How, what do you look? Yeah, for? Uh, Emily and Jonathan Martin uh, is what they what they go by. Jonathan and Emily Martin. Either one will pull them up in Spotify. Um, they make okay. incredible music, and their kids are increasingly involved in it as well. And I love them. They live out in Nashville. I think we're going to go see them soon to visit the uh, the third baby they just had. Oh wow! Congratulations to them. And your brother is he in a band, a punk rock band? So yeah, he is. Uh, he is in a band right now. We used to play together in bands throughout uh, my twenties. We had a band called the Radio Reds. Uh, you can find a lot of that still on Spotify too. Good. He's now in a like a horror punk sort of misfits type outfit called Ghoulie. <laughs> Uh, in Richmond, uh, Virginia, and and he he loves music. So there's not really a film strand necessarily in my family, but there's just an art and creativity strand. Is uh, me and all of my siblings okay. are creative. So it sounds like at least geographically you're kind of close. If Nashville, because uh, you live in North Carolina. Uh, no, I'm sorry. You wait, where do you you live in D.C. Right? Yeah. So I've been ping ponging a bit. Um, me and my yeah, I, okay. I've kind of taken my family back and forth. So. Um, when my daughter was first born in 2010, we were still living in Greensboro. Uh, we now okay. uh, reside in Manassas, Virginia, which is a, a suburb of Washington, D.C., um, doing the commuter gotcha. life. So I live on the on this outskirts and go into the swamp whenever I need to. <laughs> Understood. Okay. So wait, what, what instrument did you play when you and your brother would uh, play in a band together? So I was never an amazing um, guitarist, but I play rhythm guitar and acoustic. So okay. my, my main function was I was the singer of our band, the Radio Reds. I wrote all the songs, um, did all the vocals. Uh, I, <laughs> I really took chorus very, very seriously when I was in, in high school. I was part of like a, a choir called the Madrigals Choir. It's like a Renaissance-themed, costumed uh, uh, you know, choir, and I was a countertenor. I love singing. I love doing harmonies. So I was the singer and songwriter and I would back everything up with rhythm guitar and my brother played bass. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of the crowning, not, not achievements because we didn't like succeed as a band, but like, I love, I love the music. I love listening to it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, you and me both. And we'll get into that later. But does any part of you wish that, man, I wish I was in a band like that was my job. Or, yeah. or do you just say, no, nah, that was a part of my life that I don't need to revisit? <laughs> oh, that's a tough question. Um, I love performing. I, I really like being on stages and, and performing whatever art I have for people. Right now, I really, I really get that out through podcasting. I get that out through doing media. Um, and I have ideas and thoughts I want to share with people. But you know, the life of a musician is really, really hard. Uh, that is a life on the road, I mean, at least before COVID it was. Um, and it's it's just so, <laughs> so hard to make it, right? And I'm not saying it's not hard to make it in other industries, but right. I, I don't think the life of a musician was ever really the life that I wanted. But if it was easy and if it was luxurious, right, and that <laughs> musicians just lived lives of comfort – I would absolutely love to do that because I miss singing. I miss singing and screaming my heart out on stages so much. I, I, I feel that hurt um, that I don't do it, but it's also not a life that I actually think I could I could sustain. Now you've held a couple of other kinds of jobs that I want to I want to touch on here. You got to tell me about being a bounce house 
manager. <laughs> what, what is a bounce house manager? Because when I think of bounce houses, yeah, uh, yeah. all I think of are germs. And who knows what kind of diseases are, are floating around in there? Because I just think of sweaty, gross little kids bouncing around. Well, your hey, imagination is correct. Know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I am correct. Okay. What does a manager do? What, what is your role there? Uh, I mean, blow whistles at children and tell them to stop uh, fighting and throwing up on the ground. You know, like it's just, it's just like a, it was, it's a nasty job, but I also had a, a really good time doing it. And, and for two reasons, mm-hmm. like, so one, like, you know, when you work at a bounce house and I did this for three to four years while I was working my way through college at UNCG Greensboro. And I, I made that transition to political science. I worked at this place called Safari Nation. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I enjoyed being like a lifeguard of bounce houses. I really liked playing with the kids, doing some dodgeball here and there, you know, just getting into trouble. It was like a fun place to work and goof off. Uh, but it was also really nasty. <laughs> you were like, you were sick all the time. Um, you know, just like, oh. you just like kind of like teachers build immunity, like herd immunity in some way to their students because they're with the same kids every day. But when you work, oh, when you yeah. work at kids entertainment places, you're around these little sick creatures and different ones every single day. So I just oh. remember being sick constantly. But then my main responsibility there was running birthday parties. And that was where I learned just how much of a control freak I am because I actually really loved orchestrating birthday parties and just like finishing them from from beginning to end. Um, and I, I liked that feeling of taking it off p- really stressed out parents' hands um, and managing how a party would go. So it was just little little areas where you learn things about yourself that follow you for the rest of your life. Tell us about being the Hilton Hotels culture manager. What's a culture manager? So Hilton Hotels... And this is this is what I did after I finished school. So I, I, you know, I wrapped up Safari Nation, wrapped up UNCG Greensboro, and then I moved to Raleigh to start trying to find political work. And so, you know, obviously in North Carolina, Raleigh is where the action is at. So I got down there. I couldn't find anything immediately. So I took up an opportunity that my mom presented to me through a friend to go work for Hilton Hotels. And I went to the Hilton North Raleigh Midtown, and they had just rolled out this like culture initiative. You know, it's it's like when you have company cultures, right? Like some some companies just have like uh, uh like principles and sort of ideas and rules. Hilton sort of had like what would you call it? like an ethos sort of like this this culture brand called Blue Energy. If you were like following the ideals and principles of Hilton Hotels, you were part of Blue Energy. <laughs> And they, it was very cheesy, but they were also like very invested in making it successful. So they appointed at every hotel sort of an ambassador for the culture initiative. And I ended up finding myself in that role after working in every other department and not liking any of them. I ended up as the blue culture (laughs) manager. Basically, like I was sort of the guy who would work to make sure that like Hilton corporate's values were being reflected in the hotel. Um, And it was actually a lot of fun. It was all about, you know, empowering different departments to do their own thing, to add value to customers. Um, There was this idea, it was called make it right. And so it was basically when you go to the, the front desk and you've got a problem with your room, 
what do customers hate? Like, what do you hate more than anything? It's when then they're like, let me call somebody and let them let let me see what they can do, right? Let me get my manager on the line, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that that really makes people mad and they get more flustered. Mm-hmm. And so, make it right was like this entire culture initiative from Hilton, which was it is your responsibility. You are the first responder. If a guest comes to you with a problem, you fix it. And so that was like. You know, if you were like the janitor, right, like the, the the custodial department at the hotel and somebody is like, hey, I have problems with my bed sheets, that person is supposed to like get it done, not just call someone else to do it. And sometimes that was, you know, like a, a waiter at the at the restaurant giving out a $100 voucher to somebody because their meal was wrong. Wow. Right. And, and so and, and we were like, do it. Like, if you think that that's what's right to solve this situation, then do it. And if you overdo it we'll talk about maybe if you overdid it but like wow the the main priority was teaching people to solve problems on their own and that actually huh. it was actually really cool and i think i learned a lot about that from like a conservative perspective like bottom-up mm. kind of uh, approaches to problem solving so under this program i go to the front desk and i say my thermostat is not working in my room right you're not going to get on the elevator with me from behind the front desk, go up to the 10th floor and work on it, right? You're not going to send maintenance? I mean, how, I'm, 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 I don't know if that's an extreme example. Yeah. But it just... Well, so when you're at a hotel, it's it's experiential, right? Like you don't have the technical expertise to fix that person's thermostat and fix the air conditioning in their room. But there are two things that you can do. And I'm, I'm so delighted to be talking about this because it's been years. Um, but like <laughs> you can do one of two things or, or both. You can call uh, the utilities people and get them to come up there and fix it. Uh, you can move them to another room. You could just go ahead and like, you right. know, get them into a better room and you could upgrade them. Or, and this is what I would suggest to to somebody if you don't have the technical expertise to solve the problem, say, hey, how about we treat you to lunch or dinner or whatever right now over in the restaurant? Let's get you a drink and let's get you a burger. And <laughs> while while you're over there, like I will deal with this. And so it's it's more about like giving them something else. I got you. Yeah, like okay. you create a better experience and then you get somebody to solve the problem. But don't make that person stand there and wait for you to like <laughs> call help. Right. Give them something okay. else. Okay, is this a program that is still is it still their policy? Yeah, I've I've probably been out for I don't know like close to eight years, but I imagine if you like have a problem at a Hilton hotel and you go to the front desk and you're like I want you to quote make this right, uh, they uh-huh. they might know what you're talking about. So I hope they okay. st- I hope they still have it because I thought it was really successful. That's great. That's great. So you're married. Your wife is Melanie. You've been married for ten years now. Yes. Y'all have a daughter, Sylvie, correct? We do, yeah. And why don't you tell us about um, the moment you had to tell your dad that Melanie was with child? Hmm. So this was a little bit after uh, we moved. I moved back from Western Carolina University to my um, home base of Greensboro, North Carolina to finish my political science education. So Melanie and I were dating at that time. We'd been together for about a year and a half, and we had known each other throughout all of high school. Um, Melanie followed me up to Western Carolina to live with me up there, and we went back to Greensboro. She very much did not want to go back. Um, that was that was sort of a thing that was a huge problem in, in our dating relationship because she just didn't want to go back home. She liked being away. Um, but I changed my major and went back to Greensboro. I guess longer story short, um, yeah, I mean, she she 
got pregnant during that time. And it was also the time period where my dad, right after the housing crash, so it was 2008, going into 2009, the housing market was in shambles and he was working for that time at the Realtors Association. Uh, He got canned. He lost his job. Uh, as a head of the Oris Association, and his second wife uh, left him at the same time. Uh, it all it all just kind of came crashing down in a really ugly way. And my dad, this man who you know had always kept a roof over my head, done so many things for me. Always, and this is just sort of give you a, give you a picture of, of things. We kind of always had at least a two or a three story home, right? <laughs> a, a nice and a kind of a nice big home with plenty of amenities and perks. Um, sure. My dad all of a sudden had nothing, um, pretty much lost a lot uh, in that second divorce and was living in this really crummy neighborhood in a really crummy apartment. And I went to go move in with him because I just, I just wanted to be with him. I didn't, I was afraid of him being alone. I, I, you just don't know what some people will do, right? When they kind of hit bottom. So I moved in with him and then I got my girlfriend pregnant. And I, I just remember going to him with all of these things that are going on with him, like all the things that are not right in his life and putting this in front of him. And I just, mm. I just remember feeling horrible. And I just thought this was the end of days. And um, all I remember is him just hugging me and just pulling, oh, wow. pulling me close in that moment. And he, you know, he kind of blubbered a little bit, but I just remember him saying, it's going to be okay. And that was not what I expected. But I think it was mm. a little bit of a byproduct of him being at rock bottom. <laughs> yeah. And so I was sort of like at this moment where not rock bottom, but like things weren't good. Um, and I... I'll never forget that. Uh, it meant a lot. When someone that you look up to, but also, I don't want to say fear, but fear their reaction and in, in that you disappointed them or, course, or that you yeah. feel like you've disappointed them. And then when they react in such a way that is shockingly positive, that that does feel good. I've been in that position as well. So that's that's really cool. You obviously stay busy with the family. You've got some hobbies, though. You are a rock climber, and I've got to think that you get into the mountains of North Carolina to indulge that, correct? So I am working my way towards that, actually. So Okay, um, okay. I have, not, I have yet to do outdoor rock climbing. I take the indoor rock climbing really seriously. I love the, the competitive nature of indoor um, belay-based climbing. Um, and top rope climbing. That's, that's sort of like when you've, uh, you're, you're, you're latched into sort of an artificial climbing wall um, and you've got a rope and somebody running the rope and it goes up over the top and you're not going to fall, right? Everything's okay. It's not a big deal. As long okay. as you've got somebody holding the rope, they're going to catch you. The next step up from that is lead rope. And that is where you're climbing the wall and attaching the rope to carabiners going up the wall. And the way that that works is you might clip into a carabiner on the wall, climb 10 feet to where the next carabiner is. And if you fall in between those two carabiners, you're going to fall the length till the next carabiner. So, right. right, there's 10, 10 feet between the two. You get five feet up, you slip, you fall five feet. And the person who's catching you on the rope better have you. I am working my way up to that right now and trying okay. to muster up the courage to hit the outdoor um, rock climbing world, but I'm I'm a little reticent. Um, I, I like the safety sure. of climbing indoors, 
Um, and I also take out that energy on American Ninja Warrior obstacle courses. And that's been a real big yeah. way for me to, to spend okay. time with my daughter. I need to ask you that because I saw that Ninja Warrior. I didn't realize it was an actual, what is it, a business or something? Yeah, so... You know the show, right? American Ninja Warrior. Have you seen that? Right, right, right. Right. So American Ninja Warrior is this, you know, competition obstacle course show, a little bit of parkour mixed with obstacle course stuff. And there are franchised gyms all around the country that sort of have like the stamp of approval from the American Ninja Warrior Athletic kind of association. Okay. I got to get out more. Right? So like these, you can have like a gym like just sort of like a heavyweights gym, right? With lots of obstacle courses. And if you kind of do the right things for programming in that gym, you can get approved by the American Ninja Warrior um, franchise and it'll be like a branded gym. So these are all over the country. You probably have one in your area. Um, you probably right. you probably have more than one in your area actually being in Dallas. So they're yeah. everywhere. And there was one in, in Durham, North Carolina that we went to and we loved it and had the greatest time learning how to do that stuff. Do you have, wait, whoa, whoa, hold on. Stop for a second. You just said learning how to do that stuff. So it's not something where you just roll up out of shape and say, I want to take on the Ninja Warrior course. It, it's actually a process? Yeah. So they're they're like gyms, uh, like any other kind of gym. Okay. There's, okay, you, okay. You pay a membership and you go in and there's stuff. There's all sorts of Told stuff you, that you could hurt yourself I on. I got to get out. Yeah. Like there's trapeze. There's, ro- there's these big walls. There's all these hurdles that you can go in. And you can go in and freestyle. You could just go in there and just start running around and put yourself in harm's way. <laughs> or you could <laughs> take some class. And they they will walk you right. through technique um, very carefully because you can hurt your. I'd knee. be injured in five minutes, Stephen. Yeah, five minutes. Tops. There's all sorts of stuff that you do that's dangerous, and you want to know uh-huh. you want to know how to land safely. You want to know how to vault over <laughs> right. a wall in a way that doesn't crack your elbow. Um, oh. And I did hurt my shoulder by vaulting over a wall. With improper form, I I really like I put my arm on it wrong. And I instead of letting my arm be loose and bending my elbow, I kind of had like a stiff arm. And I it Uh threw my shoulder out. That's the reason you take the classes and kind of do the training so that like you learn form and then you are I less see. likely to hurt yourself. I could be the most prepared person in the building. I'll find a way to injure myself. Besides, you're telling me this as a 31-year-old man. I'm in my mid-40s. I know <laughs> what would happen to me. And with a track record, by the way, that is um, very suspect. You know, at the end of a ninja competition, when you run up the straight wall to tap the buzzer at the yeah. end, they, uh-huh. all ninja gyms have have those in them and you do not know like anxiety until you have tried to run up that wall and you're actually uh-huh. and you're actually at the top and you have to make the reach and you're like holy crap if i do not grab the ledge here i'm tumbling <laughs> like 15 feet <laughs> no horrifying but you got to you got to oh. do it <laughs> got to do it okay so we'll talk about your hobby star wars 
Uh, your well, I'm sorry, your obsession, Star Wars. <laughs> but I love the name of your dog, Kylo. Yeah. What a great name for a dog. Have you always named your pets after Star Wars characters? No, I have not. Uh, this is okay. this is the first time I've done that. I just I just remember <laughs> one of the first things I said when I left left the Force Awakens episode seven in 2015. I leaned over to my brother. I was like, Kylo would make a great dog name. <laughs> and then and then a couple a couple years later, I got that dog and. There there you go. And, uh, That's perfect. Yeah. How did you get into Star Wars then to begin with? Uh, I think just like the same as any kid, you know, in the 90s. Okay. So in the 90s, uh, that was sort of the drought of Star Wars. Um, there was the gap between 1983 and 1999 where there were no Star Wars movies. But they, right. they sort of had a big, you know, resurgence in, in about 1996 when the special editions were re-released in theaters. And I saw it then. And I just remember, I just remember loving it, playing with the toys more than anything with my brother. And that love was there, but my love was really taken to the to the next level um, during the prequels. I absolutely loved the Star Wars prequels, and my my really I did. And my my highest and favorite memory as a Star Wars fan is the opening night of Revenge of the Sith, Episode Three. At that time, I was in high school. And me and my buddies were like the total dorks of our school, like the real, like the real nerds. Uh, we had customized Jedi robes. We had lightsabers, and oh, we man. we went to the midnight show opening, stood in line for eight hours, and we were just those people in line for that movie, lightsaber fighting with people we've never met before, and uh, being complete, <laughs> complete dweebs. Um, okay, so. Hold on a second. Let's stop for just a moment here because that's why I was surprised because I, I know that you're such a huge Star Wars fan. And so when you told me that you're 31, you said you were born, what, 1989? Mm -hmm. I was thinking, okay, so because he didn't grow up, you know, in that era. I've just never heard anyone utter the phrase, quote, I just really loved the prequels. Yeah. End quote. So, I mean, cool. I'm, I'm glad that that had such an impression on you. I wonder... Does your wife, Melanie, who you've known forever, is she as big into this as you, or does she just tolerate your Star Wars obsession? Somewhere in the middle. She's she's not it. She's <laughs> she's not into it. Um, I would say like her Star Wars fandom is very focused on just loving Han Solo and then loving how much fun my daughter and I have with it. She enjoys That's watching great. the movies with us, but uh, it's definitely not okay. something that we share per se. Are you a fan of the Mandalorian? Oh, it's fantastic. Um, I yeah. it's it's one of those pieces of evidence. Uh, whereas like, you know, Disney has messed up quite a few things um, since they took over mm -hmm. Star Wars. But Mandalorian is one of those pieces of evidence that they can do very good work. Um, it's just sort of unclear why they don't always do good work. I agree. That is a series that my family and I are really enjoying. And we look forward to seeing the other shows that, that come out of that as well. So that's definitely revitalized the franchise. I think we can all agree on that. No doubt, no doubt. And there is, um, there's so much in The Mandalorian that if you grew up in the 90s like I did when Star Wars was in that drought, most of the, the Star Wars universe was governed by books at that time. It was called The Expanded Universe. Um, and it was just, you know, just authors just churning out Star Wars books with sort of like a, a soft seal of approval from Star Wars and Lucasfilm. But none of it was like canon. Like none of it was 
was actually official, but most people all read these Star Wars books and considered them to be kind of their version of the canon. And there's so much of The Mandalorian that is chock full of material from that world of Star Wars. The Dark Troopers is a good example that show up towards the end of season two, these big black stormtroopers. Um, those are from that era, video games and books. And I, I just think The Mandalorian is just a very special piece of, uh, of Star Wars canon that, uh, you know, it, it unites Star Wars fandom more than anything these days. And we will get into all of your social media handles and places that folks can find you online. But I do want to take the moment to tell everybody about the Beltway Banthas podcast. You have fun over there, right? Sure do. Uh, Beltway Banthas is, uh, is my Star Wars and politics podcast. Started it in 2016 during the uh, the presidential race at that time. And it is about looking at our political viewpoints and world through the lens of Star Wars, and then also breaking down the details of life in the Star Wars universe. So like if you're curious about how the Senate works in the prequels, if you're curious about how is it that like Star Wars has governors that govern each part of the galaxy during the reign of the empire, right? Like we it. also kind of go over the in-world or in-universe facts of Star Wars politics, um, which is super important. Like, who ran the Empire after Emperor Palpatine was killed in Return of the Jedi? Both Vader and Palpatine and Tarkin were all gone, so who ran the Empire? Those are the kind of questions that we go over, and we try to provide answers. And so you are, correct me if I'm wrong, like these are actual from your knowledge of the Star Wars universe, correct? Yep, yep, absolutely. Sometimes I have to do some research, right? Like sometimes I, right. sometimes we get a, a request from a listener to do a certain topic and I've got to go like get read up on it. But, you know, we don't, we don't really do speculation or theories on the Beltway Banthas podcast. We, uh-huh. we only deal in um, what you would consider to be fact. <laughs> How many Star Wars books do you own? Not many, actually. So I only own hard copies of about five Star Wars books and then three um, Star Wars encyclopedias. And then I have a couple of digital copies of different books, but I actually am not a huge book collector. I actually focus most of my my money and spending on Star Wars on costumes. Oh my. (laughs) (laughs) How many Star Wars themed costumes do you own, Stephen? I own three, Keith. Three costumes. Um, so I have a custom set of dark Jedi robes that are kind of like a hybrid of Anakin Skywalker and Darth Maul's robes. So if you kind of like took those two concepts and blended them together, um, I have a rebel, uh, a rebel trooper costume that is sort of in the vein of what you might see in Star Wars Rogue One. And then I also have an Imperial officer uniform for the character director Krennic from Rogue One. So that's a white imperial officer uniform with a white cape um and these these costumes take years to build if you don't have like you know mountains of money um you can obviously go to party you know party central or whatever and just pick up a hundred dollar costume but if you really want to have like the good stuff you have to just kind of buy pieces over the course of time you know like a a fifty dollar piece here a 75 or a hundred dollar piece there and you build these costumes are you sewing these together yourself or or what no so usually 
usually will commission them. Um, it's it's you know, like you, okay. you kind of like go on Etsy, right? Or you go through your friend networks and try to find people who are professional costume makers. Um, it's called cosplay, right? That's what the community that does costuming right. is called. So you try to find yourself a good cosplay designer online. They're everywhere. And you just ask them, can you make this? And then you send them your measurements and they will make it for you. But it is not cheap. Um, it is not mm-hmm. cheap to go that route if you want to buy it uh, from an actual person with uh, with skill making these things. And then you just have to buy uh-huh. pieces to make it realistic and make it like a quality costume. You know, as you've been talking, you are an authority on Star Wars stuff. And I was thinking, <laughs> why don't I bug him with questions that I have when I'm watching The Mandalorian or something like that? And, and I just realized that's because I'm surrounded by three, my children are just like you like it's like talking to them about star wars they have that knowledge and that that understanding yeah oh absolutely they are they are definitely obsessed and you have to meet them the next time that you're in dallas and i will just i'll I'll leave y'all to it because you will talk for hours about stuff but i do have two quick questions about star wars one question that's always bugged me and maybe you can give us a a short but convincing answer and the other one is just i want your take It, it just was unbelievable i did not understand how quickly anakin turned evil Mm -hmm. to become darth vader it just made no sense to me it was like they were just force feeding us but i want to ask you your opinion and then the other one is what is the stephen kent star wars aficionado take on jar jar binks okay so the first one anakin's fall the revenge of the sith is a movie that happens in the span of about three days That's three days of galactic history, uh, and it is just the very final fall of Anakin and the Republic. Um, That leaves open this huge gap in people's knowledge of how the heck did this happen, right? Like, Mm -hmm. this was was fast for people. The previous movie, Attack of the Clones, that is roughly three years before, okay? So Anakin um, becomes a Jedi. He he has that incident where his mother is killed and he murders the Tusken Raiders, the men, the women, the children too. Um, And that is his big first step towards darkness. And then the Clone Wars begins. So the Clone Wars starts at the end of the second movie in the prequels. And that is where trouble starts for Anakin. He becomes a warrior. He becomes a killer, a guy who has to, you know, fight every single day. Um, And that is three years of fighting a really nasty war. If you want to understand what happens to Anakin over this time period... Disney Plus, there's a series called The Clone Wars, and it is... My kids have told me I need to watch this to understand everything that's happening. Right. It's the cartoon, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a cartoon, and, and you will you will be kind of shocked, I think, Keith, like when you watch it, because The Clone Wars came out in the mid-2000s. It's kind of like crudely animated for the first couple of seasons. It looks like a like a really old video game animation sequence. Mm. So it's a, li- okay. it's a little crudely animated for its time, but as the show goes on for, oof, like eight eight, nine seasons. Um, It gets more sophisticated over time. And I have to just say, the storytelling is excellent. There are plenty, there are plenty of what you would call filler episodes, you know, kind of like goofy adventure episodes, but there's just so (laughs) much deep Star Wars lore that really enriches Anakin's fall. Um, And it, it makes what happens in episode three make sense. Like, how could he make that decision to turn? Um, So I would recommend that as your answer to that problem. Okay. And your official take on Jar Jar Binks? Uh, My official take on Jar Jar Binks is that 
<laughs> and just bear with me here. Um, he, he, he is annoying. I, I, I get it. I, I think at this point in my life, my take on Jar Jar is that adults need to be able to filter out things that uh, slightly irk them to look for the things that are good. And it really has always bothered me that people cannot talk about episode one and some of the really great Star Wars moments in there without always coming back to this thing that irked them. Like, oh, but Jar Jar. <laughs> and I, I'm just like, yeah, like, yeah. like ugh, we got to be able to like block out <laughs> things that bother us and not let it dominate our thoughts. <laughs> Jar Jar, Jar Jar is just such like a sideshow of episode one. But do you think he was supposed to have a bigger role that no. he was just so oh, annoying well, that oh, they... Yeah. Wrote him out? Yeah, so actually that is, I mean, that is the case. Uh, George Lucas did like Jar Jar and he wanted more of Jar Jar, um, but the fan blowback was so vicious and mm-hmm. the the fan blowback against like the actor, uh, Ahmed Best, was so vicious that Jar Jar, oh. Jar, Jar Jar ended up sort of biting the dust in the in the story and, and it's for the best. I mean, it, he was not, he <laughs> was not a great addition to the story, but I just also don't view it as a huge distraction. Um, okay. it's, it's this side show that I have a very easy time looking beyond. Gotcha. So you are also really into music. Yeah. And I think you and I, I I love this. You mentioned sad songs playlists. So you actually create playlists of sad songs, right? (laughs) I I don't label them as sad songs playlists. Right. But like... it's okay. No, it's okay. I mean, you're among friends because that's what I do. I mean, I don't call them sad songs. We call them I'll driving like songs. For them. <laughs> okay, there's that too. Uh, and I've got some other titles for those playlists, but it's just, it's a kind of music. I talked to a guest recently. He's an artist and he, and you're going to appreciate this because this is one of the areas you and I connected in. He likes to paint while the national plays yeah. on his yeah. stereo. And I'm telling you, there are certain bands that their music is both depressing and uplifting at the same time yeah it's it's magical apartment story apartment story by the national i mean like that okay yeah like that song it's uplifting yeah so there are two bands that do that above all others it's the national and a band that i love called travis Mm -hmm. and there's just it's such a rare gift that a band can do that over and over so you're obviously a fan of of that kind of music who are some bands that that you really gravitate toward that you would like the audience to go and check out well so my number one is ryan adams uh ryan adams is a americana singer songwriter musician from the raleigh north carolina area um, and he is, you know, now sort of like a, a you know national superstar. He has a band which I think you would really enjoy. Um, this is from the the late '90s called Whiskey Town. Um, that is sort of alt country, a little bit of rock, a little bit of country. Really sad, <laughs> really sad lyrics about hometowns and and broken families and and uh, <laughs> you know cultural decay. But you know, kind of done in a weird, like uplifting manner because it's kind of like country music. Um, and then Ryan Adams as a solo musician who's been active for about 20 years now and has like 20 albums under his belt. He did like more, sometimes more than one a year. That's my guy. And uh, I'm, I'm currently in a little bit of a sad place because Ryan fell into the um, the Me Too um, situation over the last two years. He had a really bad Me Too incident reported on in the New York Times that has really kind of 
put his career on pause. And he's been hiding in his house for about two years. And it's unclear um, when he's going to really get his gravitas back. He just put out an album uh, about two months ago called Wednesdays. And it is kind of like his apology record. It's very sad. Um, and it has a couple songs that are that are fun. But I, I kind of worry that his music will just never be the same. Oh, boy. Okay. A favorite book that you have read is One Billion Americans. <laughs> yeah. What is that about? What is that yeah, about? Yeah. So, so, so your boss, Glenn, uh, he interviewed this author, um, Matt Iglesias, for the Glenn Beck podcast. So I would recommend anybody go listen to that to learn more about it. So Matt Iglesias is one of the co-founders of Vox. Uh, he has since left Vox because of its, you know, hyper sort of PC politics and not being able to engage with reality anymore to run a Substack newsletter called Slow Boring. But One Billion Americans is Matt's policy manifesto about why we should have a population of 1 billion instead of about 300 something million, which is where we are. So he proposes in this book that as a national greatness project, as a project for having America lead in the 21st century, we need to up our population dramatically. Oh no. I know. Okay. It's 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 a super interesting and edgy premise. And and you know, Glenn Glenn had him on and he was just like, "Are you serious?" <laughs> <laughs> but so how many kids per family does that in, in what time frame is he talking about? Well, so he's talking about a time frame of, uh, of over uh, 30 to 40 years um, that we need to dramatically ramp up the size of our population um, to remain a global power. If you understand the global power race and the problem of China, mm -hmm. um, population is a huge part of that. And I, I cannot summarize his book. It's it's a very very long piece, but he looks at different mechanisms for growing your population. So it's you know it's also just like you know like the Romney family tax credit kind of idea, like making it more affordable to have children, fixing housing gotcha. so that people can afford houses because when people have space, they have more kids. And currently, we have this huge problem of a housing shortage across America in major metros where it's hard to get into a house. And when people are trapped in apartments for years on end, they just they just try to restrict the the amount of kids that they have. And then there's also the immigration yeah. side of it as well. Um, so okay. yeah, it's uh, it's really framed from a guy who comes from the left as why increasing our population is not about, you know, moral things, right? And he makes the case that like environmentalists are really wrong on this. Environmentalists like want us to have no children anymore because they think that there's no space and everything will become, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, polluted, right? And he looks at this differently. He goes like, we need to be a great country. And there are a couple of things we need to do to be a great, powerful country and run the world. And that's going to be increasing our size. Wow, I got to check that book out. I love this. You've got, you know, five possessions you would keep, your acoustic guitar, your dog, your chessboard, your coffee pour-over kit. Tell us about your grandpa's Navy papers from 1943. What's that about? I, I, it's just his papers from the war. So when my, when my grandpa passed, uh, my grandma passed down to my dad, and then my dad uh, left with me my grandpa's World War II satchel. It was this, it's this big um, sort of... Uh, um, it looks like a potato sack, honestly, like duffel that the Navy gave him to go aboard his ship uh, on the Pacific. He was a lieutenant naval captain or a lieutenant Navy, and he served there for 
two years. And when he came home, he, he had all of his stuff. And so I've got his letters, um, his papers, the registration for the ship that he was on, um, and a couple of his, uh, his diary entries where he mostly just wrote about his fear of submarines. Um, I, wow. I've, I heard from grandpa for years and grandma would talk sometimes about his nightmares. And uh, I think something that just sort of scarred him for the rest of his life was the fear of, of submarine attack. And that was just some sort of a, a, a night terror that he was just never able to shake. I have, I have those things and I, I cherish them um, cherish them greatly. I also have his, his jacket and his, uh, his, uh, his lieutenant's cap. Oh, very cool. That is awesome. So Clay Aiken was your school's <laughs> drama teacher in Raleigh. Was this before uh, American Idol? After? Where, before. where does this fall mm-hmm. on the spectrum? Yep. So time? Clay Aiken, oh. um, known as the American Idol runner. Uh, no, he won. Yeah, he won. Uh, it was Ruben who was the runner up. And then he was later a Democratic candidate for Congress. He lost. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So he's he's in Democratic politics a lot right now. But Clay Aiken uh, is from Raleigh, and he was a drama coach uh, and a voice teacher. And I cannot for the life of me remember, Keith, where... I did this play. I don't remember if it was a school function or like a community sort of center deal, like a community theater thing. But Clay Aiken was the uh, the director of my play for the greatest Christmas pageant ever when I was roughly eight or nine years old. And he was also huh. he was also a voice instructor for my sister um, throughout most of the '90s. He taught voice, and he taught my my my, uh, my older sister Emily, who is now a you know a professional um, touring musician. So. Um, cool is that? Yeah, really, really cool stuff. I've got a a picture from the play uh, where the whole cast got together, and Clay is just such a dork, like acne all over his face, these big, <laughs> big glasses, and his hair slicked back. He just was like this greasy nerd. Uh, and then by the time he was on American Idol, I guess he had like come out of the closet and, and become fabulous. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. He's he's lived an interesting life already. Uh, Uh, as well. Steve Irwin, what a great answer when I ask the question, who in history would you like to meet? A lot of people go with Winston Churchill or or think really far back. But Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, uh, why did you choose him? (laughs) Well, just... My my daughter, that's that's her hero. Um, my uh, daughter adores Steve. She's got like a cardboard cutout of him in her room for Pete's sake. Um, <laughs> my daughter, my daughter, like wears khakis every single day and a khaki button down in honor of Steve. Um, she loves the Irwin family, and I, I, I loved him growing up, and I, I absolutely loved the Crocodile Hunter. Sure. Um, and I, my original want in my life was to be um, a zookeeper. You know, when I was a kid, kid. And and oh, cool. Steve was Steve was a hero. And I just am just still like it's just not fair that someone like Steve right. is dead. That he got killed by a, a freaking stingray. All of I know, all of man. the things that he has done, the risks he has taken. He got impaled in the heart by a stingray. That's just not fair. And I just I just want to talk to him. I don't know what the heck we yeah. would talk about. And I think I just, when you sent me this question, I was like, you know what? There's all these historical figures that I'd love to sit down with, and I'm sure it would be cool. But I just, mm-hmm. I don't, I just want to spend a day with Steve Irwin. <laughs> I think of that a lot as well. Like, really, man, he's not with us anymore. Someone that it's not fair. Full of that much positive energy. We need someone like that in this world right now. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I've got to ask you this. Any interesting talents you have or something people don't know about you? Stephen Kent responds with, 
He loves doing choreographed fights, y'all. <laughs> does does um, that surprise where do you? you <laughs> well, no, I guess I was going to say, where do you have the opportunity to do that? And I think I know the answer. It's Star Wars related, correct? Oh, yeah. Okay. So then the follow-up is, does this require your fighting partner to be on the same page? Is it kind of like memorizing dance moves or something? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's memorizing dance moves, um, <laughs> except with long, long sticks that can uh, bruise your knuckles and, uh, and break your eye. <laughs> so. So, so, yeah, I did this. You got to really trust a person on the other end, right? You absolutely do. But you you really have to trust yourself. Um, it's the same mm-hmm. thing with in Ninja, right? So in Ninja, if you're jumping from one obstacle to another or you're jumping from a high place to the ground, it's hesitation that will get you a broken ankle. It's hesitation that's going to make you slip when you jump from that one thing to the next when you're doing Ninja Warrior. And it's it's hesitation when you're doing choreographed sort of st- sword and stick battles, right? That will right. cause you to not swing the way that you're supposed to because you don't want to hit the person in the head. Um, but that's exactly what throws off choreography. Everybody has to do their job. Everybody needs to do their moves. Um, and that's how it works. And I, t- I loved doing this throughout high school. And I took it very seriously with several of my friends. We, we memorized a good quarter of the Obi-Wan versus Darth Maul and Qui-Gon fight. Like we copied it move for move, um, as well as Anakin versus Obi-Wan from episode three. We got through about half of that battle. And it came to a screeching halt when I when I dislocated my knee doing it. Um, oh. Yeah, I took I took a step. Like I just I stepped backward to avoid a hit. Um, and I shouldn't have done it. And I, I twisted my knee in this funny way and it just shredded my kneecap. Um, and so that was oh. like a two year recovery till I was back to normal. And it, I've, it's never really been the same, but I still love doing it and I play with it on and off. You play. Wait. You play with the kneecap, or you? Play I play. With Star I play Wars? with my kneecap, Keith. I juggle it around in a in a jar. Seriously. No. Yeah. I, just, I still still play party with, trick. Yeah, right? I still play with like sword choreography. So I've got I've okay. got two staffs and a couple training swords, and I just love to play with them. Oh, so. right. <laughs> Interior design is something you're into. I take decorating my home very seriously. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I can't even begin to imagine. Not that she should want to. But I can't imagine my wife allowing me to decorate a corner of the house. Literally, I hung up three pictures in the laundry room when I'm we moved in you. here. I'm proud of you. Yeah, and and that is really the only say that I have. Well, that and some things hanging in the garage. But um, does Melanie help you or does she just let you take care of the interior decorating? Remember what I told you early on about what I learned about myself doing birthday parties at Safari Nation and then going into oh, in, no. going in, going freak. into hospitality? I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit of a control freak. <laughs> so I, I have a vision, right? I see I see rooms. I see what could be. And uh, and my, my wife at this point knows that like I'm going to tear stuff up and spend unreasonable amounts of money until the vision is realized. Uh, but the the rooms always end up looking really nice and something that I think you could put in a catalog. So I, I care a lot about that. She does not. Okay, very cool. <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously, yeah. Uh, well, speaking of spouses, my wife, she wants to do a cage dive with a great white shark. Oof. That is something you want to accomplish in your lifetime. Is that also your worst fear as well? Oh, it's absolutely my worst fear. Um, so why do you want to do it, man? Because you only live once, Keith. You only live well, once. Well, yeah, but the key is to not die so soon. <sighs> There's And it's just, 
Yeah, oh, there's just no, there are certain no. realities to it. Like there's just not that many instances of a death happening there. Like <sighs> it would be much more dangerous for me to do this other thing that I might be might do soon, which is is outdoor rock climbing. Like that scares the the living daylights out of me. I don't want to die like that. But I also do not want to die in the ocean. Um, I don't swim in the ocean much, Keith. Like I don't go beyond knee deep uh, water at the at the beach. Uh, it's I just find it to be very scary. I don't like. I don't like not being able, I don't like not being able to see what is around me. The whole uh, I'm the same way. Yeah, it's like you ever see those like sky cam videos of beaches when people are like looking at sharks and they're like look at these shadows of sharks near the beach. <laughs> Uh, right. And these oblivious people yeah. all over the place. I'm with you. I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay. Yeah. I will say though that part of my fear dates back to when I was in I don't know, seventh grade. I think it was, I think it was a summer between sixth and seventh grade. And I had gone to Hawaii with the family and somebody gave me a boogie board or something like that. I just remember the styrofoam boogie board that I just, you know, I paddled around on and I was completely by myself. And I ended up on the other side of the jetty, right? There was nothing between me and Japan at that point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and I could not for the life of me. I was paddling my I was flailing around. I was trying to get back. If I could just get to that stupid wall, I could get back to shore. I was exhausted, man. It's terrifying. And these oh, I was I was losing my mind. Yeah. And these two surfers showed up out of nowhere and gave me their hand and dragged me back to that wall. And I was able to get back to shore, but wow. I mean, for, there was there was about five minutes there where you could not see anything, anything but water, and I was losing my mind. And so I think that's really where my fear started. But the internet and pictures of shark shadows has not. Yeah, helped that's along that's the way. legitimate, right. Keith. That's that's a really scary um, incident. I'm sorry that happened to you, but I'm glad. I'm glad you. I'm glad. I'm glad you made it out because yeah, that's traumatizing stuff. No, that was not fun. That was not fun. Okay, so Stephen Kent, you're all over the place. I'm gonna sit back and let you explain to the audience where they can find you on social media and podcasts and all that other fun stuff of where you're at. Okay, the full rundown. So right now, my <laughs> my first and, and and kind of top priority project is my new YouTube show on a now outlet called Rightly. So my YouTube show is called Right Now with Stephen Kent. You can find that at YouTube.com/RightlyAJ. It is conservative and libertarian talk focused on the next generation of talent in the conservative and libertarian movement. So uh, I would love if you would check it out um, and give our show a listen. It's also a podcast. And that is yeah. Rightly AJ. Rightly AJ. So youtube.com slash Rightly AJ. And the show is okay. called Right Now with Stephen Kent. And then I have a newsletter called Politicize Me. And it is about um, places where I write about the politics of different movies and TV shows. And that is a good place for you to keep up with the Beltway Banthas podcast, um, where mm. I do where I do my Star Wars show, and also a good place to keep up with my book, which comes out later this year from Hachette Center Street called How the Force Can Fix the World, um, Star Wars and Lessons 
um, on our universe. So that's going to... Wow, that's cool, man. Yeah. So I, hold on. The Politicize Me is a is politicizeme.substack.com, correct? Yeah, politicizeme.substack.com. That's where you can kind of keep okay. up with all of those things. You've got a cool sounding book coming out later this year. And what is that title again? How the Force Can Fix the World. We're still, we're oh, still, awesome. we're still working on the subtitle with the publisher, um, so that is to be determined. But it's going to be okay. a a awesome book about the lessons of Star Wars that could make our politics and our lives better if we took them more huh. seriously. And then Beltway Bantha's podcast. How often do you guys put that out? Used to be a weekly. Right now, it's a monthly show. So I'm only doing one episode a month. Um, just because of all these other projects going on. I was so. going to say, you sound like you stay extremely busy, man. I'm having a hard time right now <laughs> with, with ball juggling. Um, but the, the yeah. book, I have to turn the manuscript in in May. So that's when I owe it to the publisher. So I'm hoping once the book is off my plate, I can kind of normalize things a little bit. Well, good luck with everything that you have your hands on. And I hope it all works out for you. Um, anything that, that we need to uh, revisit or anything that I've left out here? No, Keith, this has been a lot of fun. And I appreciate this fun and well-rounded conversation. Sure thing, man. Stephen Kent, thank you so much for making time. Check out his YouTube.com show, uh, YouTube.com slash RightlyAJ. I'm going to go check it out right now, man. Awesome. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Stephen. It was a lot of fun talking with Stephen, hearing his story and uh, just picking his brain on Star Wars stuff, quite frankly. I hope you will check out his podcasts. Now, as for this podcast, I hope you're going to take the time to go over to atthemikeshow.com because over there you can find show archives, sponsor information, uh, ways to donate if you'd like to help keep the conversations going here on this show. And next week, here at At The Mike, I'm going to sit down with a college buddy of mine, from my days at the University of Nebraska. Zach Reimer, he was the go-to computer guy on our dorm floor. And uh, he was the very first person that I ever bugged with computer-related questions. Oh, there's been plenty that I've had since then. But back in the day, back in the mid-90s, just as the internet was becoming a thing, he was the guy we would go to on our floor. Zach Reimer, hope you'll join us next week for At The Mic. Until then, go be free. And thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect. Yeah.